Good morning, everybody. I'm Charlie Fink. It's December 20th, 2021. I'm here with my partner in crime, Ted Chilowitz. It's a special edition of This Week in XR. And this week we have our friends, Anne McKinnon, the editor and publisher of the Boolean uh, VRAR blog, Dean Takahashi of VentureBeat, and um, Ben Lang, the uh, founder, editor, and publisher of Road to VR. Thanks for joining us this morning, everybody, for this year-end roundup. So, uh, Anne, we'll start with you. 2021, what were the big stories this year for you? I think, sorry, what was that, Ted? I, I'm, I want to talk about uh, the big stories of the year. And yeah. let's just stipulate everybody is going to talk about metaverse and crypto. So yeah. we'll each take cue off the previous person to avoid repeating ourselves unless we disagree. Maybe, so, it's, maybe it's the approach We'll start with those two, Anne, and then you can add any that you think. And, and maybe, yeah. Charlie, maybe it's an approach of the obvious and the inobvious, right? Because right. everybody knows the obvious. What's the one that you kind of thought was really interesting? But, but it, it is also true that the obvious has many cuts to it. Yes. Right. Yeah. We're not yeah. just talking about one thing when we talk about crypto at this point. Right. Uh, we're talking about cryptocurrencies. We're talking about NFTs. We're talking about uh uh, play to earn and all these different ideas that have arisen, you know, in the general category of crypto in the past 12 months, which, you know, I think we can all agree is sort of the year that crypto, you know, barged into the mainstream, possibly related to the metaverse or not. Uh, lots of back and forth with people about that. It's certainly not established. But Anne, you look at a whole different world than I think we do. You really are deeply steeped in the arts around AR and VR. Yeah, I think the the question, I guess the obvious is we all know it is happening, being the metaverse, Web 3.0, blockchain, play to earn. But the question we don't really know is what does it mean? And in the next year, where is it going to take us? And I think the play to earn, especially code-free platforms that makes everyone can be a part of the movement and create things, is going to make this all happen a lot faster because especially younger kids who are growing up on these platforms are creating things that we could never have imagined with the tools available. So as we're seeing this become easier to enter the market and we're seeing more creativity and also user behaviors changing where over the last year people are playing online, working online, socializing online. We're seeing intersection of gaming, music festivals, hybridization, so concerts happening both in the physical world and online. It's creating monetization opportunities for artists, especially as you see the value gap between what platforms are making, what artists are making. This is a way to equalize that and actually have it for creator-focused economies. And I think that's what we're gonna see really come to light in the next couple of years in a meaningful way. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree that creators are going to be very interesting in this whole uh, big picture. And I think like the the news of the year that was interesting was, you know, of course, uh, Facebook uh, becoming meta and declaring that they're a metaverse company and saying that they're going to support an open metaverse. And that sort of raises the interesting question of how is everybody going to collaborate across companies and across industries to make this all happen? And um, um i think uh everybody will have a different interpretation of metaverse and openness and etc uh and then i i think one of the things that was very significant to me that i don't know if everybody uh felt the same way or caught on but you know nvidia started talking about their omniverse in october of 2020 and how they had adapted it from a simple 
simulation environment for robots uh, to this gigantic sort of um, opportunity to basically build a, a metaverse for engineers or enterprises. And um, they adopted, you know, um, uh, Pixar's uh, universal scene description, USD format, and made it easy for everybody to share their 3D data across these different, you know, projects and, and, and worlds. And so they, they, they kicked it off in October of 2020 and uh, had 50,000 or so you know, beta users, they're now up to 700 companies and they're adding a lot of interesting features like at their most recent GTC event, they added like uh, uh, Omniverse avatars. And, and then they also said that they're going to tie it into some other projects that they're working on. Um, like the, the biggest project that they have is a climate uh, change model that they're developing for the entire earth. And they're, they're calling this, this the Earth 2 supercomputer and they're going to build a digital twin of the earth on a meter level scale so that um, they can accurately predict uh, the weather and then climate change for you know forecasts for for decades to come and they see this as like a sort of a imperative for you know saving the planet right and um, if they do that uh, I, I asked you know Jensen Huang the CEO of Nvidia about this and he said we get the metaverse for free when we do this digital twin of the earth. And so you, ha you have this other reason to build a gigantic model of the earth. But well, then of course, that's Niantic's it, approach too, right? Yeah, once you do it, then you've got this metaverse. And so I think that was sort of maybe one of the most underrated sort of pieces mm. of news out there because we, we get this gigantic foundation of, of digital art artistry uh, and sort of this replication of the earth um, as the base foundation for starting to work on metaverses, right? Ben, what's your take? Yeah, I think uh, jumping off of what Dean said there, maybe one uh, just important thing to get out there for people listening. Um, I think there's an important distinction to make uh, between what you might call a virtual world uh, versus a metaverse or the Ooh, metaverse. Uh, generally speaking, I think a lot of people uh, with our proximity to these industries kind of agree that the metaverse is some kind of immersive interconnected. It's sort of like an immersive internet. It could take many different faces, but really it doesn't quite exist yet. So in the sense of what Dean's talking about, NVIDIA is working on a virtual version of Earth, but it's not really the metaverse, I think most of us would agree, until it connects out to other portions of the metaverse just like one website is not the internet it only becomes the internet when you have a lot of interconnected websites so i think that's how a lot of people in the industry sort of understand roughly where this is all headed and what we mean when we say metaverse and hopefully now you know listeners are, are getting that as well so i think yeah for 2021 that's the big like that's the big elephant in the room everyone's talking metaverse we've we've settled on a name at this point pretty much for uh what this you know immersive virtual space is going to be um uh and but it it doesn't exist yet it's everyone saying we're doing this in the metaverse we're doing that in the metaverse theoretical construct this we're the first to do this in the metaverse it's not the metaverse until a starts talking to b and b starts talking yes. to c and we can move some things either our, our avatars or ourselves um, or our, you know, we've got to be able to move around it. These things have to communicate. So for now, for the most part, anyone saying they're working in the metaverse is 
working on the theoretical. Eventually, they're saying we'll probably maybe connect. But there's the big question of of how, which I think Charlie had mentioned uh, not not just a couple minutes ago. Um, how how that is going to happen? Where Who gets to own the meta layer with yes. my identity and my digital objects? Yeah, and crypto, of course, is one idea. I don't think it has to be that. It's attractive for many reasons. Um, but yeah, it doesn't it doesn't have to be crypto per se. It could be blockchain um, or a lot of other different approaches. But really. If you, I think everyone sort of is mixing, you know, these virtual worlds and metaverse together because a lot of the a lot of the virtual worlds you might call sort of proto metaverse, right? Something like Roblox or something like um, Rec Room. You have people, you have lots of different experiences made by different people in one place, and everyone accesses them through this common interface of course, sort of their character, their avatar, and they experience that world through that point. Uh, of interest. So once we have a whole network of these different platforms that are hooked together, just like we have websites that link from one to the other and do different experiences, that will start to become the metaverse. But actually, I'm, I'm curious to see when that happens. One of the first two big yeah. meaningful links happen where all the other peripheral, uh, you know, I'm doing this in the metaverse, people say, oh, let me, you know, I want to be part of that network and everyone starts hooking in. That's not happening yet, but we're going to see that critical mass. And, at some and by point. the way, that might happen as it does in the book, Ready Player One in a game universe, right? Fortnite could become so powerful and so popular that everybody sort of changes their plan and says, you know what, I'm just going to have a presence. You know, I'm the NBA, I'm going to have a presence in Fortnite because that's where everybody is. Now, yeah. I'm not suggesting it will be Fortnite. I actually think it probably won't be, although that's mm -hmm. certainly a contender in this early, early uh, stage of this horse race. But I, I completely agree with you, Ben. We're in the phase where we have lots of small M metaverses or virtual worlds, if you will, that are not connected and have no real prospect of being connected anytime soon. And I think mm -hmm. the, the two issues are, as, as you mentioned, this meta layer which, you know, everyone would have to agree upon, but I don't see how that would happen. You know, that's sort of like Apple and Android, iOS and Android playing together. That hasn't happened yet. So whether the Apple metaverse and the Google metaverse and the meta metaverse <laughs> uh, all come together is, is an open question. And then something no one has considered yet in, in our conversations uh, in the DR press is that there is not one internet. And three quarters of the world is looking at an internet that is quite different and controlled quite differently than the one we see in the West. So again, I think it's part of our preening over confidence that this will be a Western construction, um, but there are equally powerful arguments about why it won't be. So not only if we all agree on this metal layer, it would have to be adopted by China and by Russia and by countries in Asia and Africa that have highly controlled internets and those governments would have to be willing to let go of that control. And I, I just, sorry, I just don't see Russia having any interest in being part of any metaverse that's controlled by an American company or the American government. There's just no way. So when we do have this metaverse, wh whenever that is, um, I still think it's not gonna be the metaverse. It's gonna be our Western metaverse but it'll be a very different experience than, than the vast majority of people in the world will end up having. So, you know, this idea of a universal metaverse 
faces, you know, it's theoretical, it faces a lot of real world obstacles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I tend to think of it uh, very much in terms of social media networks. There's the concept of the network effect where, you know, once you start getting a critical mass of people, other people want to join those people and what they're doing. The platform, it just has to have a minimum bar of mm -hmm. competency. If they can figure out that that network effect, uh, sometimes it becomes an unstoppable train. And so we see this where, you know, on Facebook, we've there's billions of users who operate and do a bunch of different stuff on this one website under this one platform, and they have their profiles and their, you know their their character or whatever whatever you'll call it that exists there. They have their their version of themselves that exists there. Their photos are like you know it could be their inventory, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, Twitter is a whole different network. Most people there's no connection between your Facebook profile and your Twitter profile unless you do it you know manually sync those. The idea uh, of this that the metaverse would necessarily perfectly link all these different major networks is is maybe not going to happen. Charlie, to your point, we might just continue to have these very large siloed experiences that are popular and do certain things really well where everyone says, I'm going to go to Facebook to do this, but for a different thing, they have their different character, their different inventories on a different platform or network like Twitter to, is to Facebook, right? These things may never directly talk to each other. Uh, I think I think the promise of the universe you know, is ben, that there's... we hope that they all will at some point, but whether or not that's the market reality is another question. I think there there is one interesting force that we saw um, with Fortnite, which was that they became so popular that um, they forced uh, interoperability upon the platform owners in games, right? And so um, they basically said, look, you know, if you want Fortnite on your platform, you have to make it work uh, with uh, uh, multiplayer gaming on you know, Xbox, on, on PlayStation, on the Nintendo Switch, and that we have to have this crossplay. And if if you don't allow for that crossplay, then you're not going to get it on your platform, right? And so then um, we we know we we sort of saw a preview then of how a metaverse could um, actually happen or evolve, and that is one company becomes powerful enough to actually dictate terms to the others that you have to participate in this metaverse or else you're going to be left out of it and and that that turned out to be powerful enough to to actually make something happen that people thought would never happen in games which was that you could be on a nintendo platform and you could play against somebody on the xbox or the pc or <laughs> playstation yeah, Dean, I, I i think you you hit upon as you guys were all talking i was like i wonder if you'll get to the thesis that popularity and success leads to inevitable interoperability. Uh, so Charlie and I have talked very often about, yes, uh, Ben was very correct about, now we have a term for it. it. Comes colloquially from the book, you know, from Neil Stevenson, and we have a word that we can all use universally. So there's popularity in and of itself, right? But we would argue that the metaverse has been around for a really, really long time. The minute that people got on the wire in whatever that form of was, we go all the way back to the telegraph and the early telephone and the early concept of broadcast television. And then the last, let's call it 45-ish years of the internet, the, we used to call the World Wide Web. And now we have you know, the term IoT, the internet of things. Everything is sort of interconnected and somewhat interoperable because of its popularity, right? Um, Companies track and drive to where it makes sense to garnish and gain customers and both financial and creative success. And now all we're seeing, you made a great point about what NVIDIA is doing, all we're seeing is the next evolution 
of this interconnected world that we're all in. We're all in it right now using one of many clients. This one happened to get popularity uh, across the pandemic, right? Um, and Skype sort of fell off the radar, which a lot of people were like, how did Skype fall off and Zoom catch on? It's an interesting thing to study. But you sort of get to this like concentric circle among concentric circle. And then you all we're doing is studying where is the level of the walled garden going to end up, right? And how often is it going to change based on people's backlash of that walled garden is too high? Facebook is trying to drive me into all of their products and I actually want to use these products. So therefore, blank, blank, blank. I'm going to you know, revolt against that and go in a different place. And this is kind of the world that we, that we exist in today. But what's happening is all these companies are learning how to capitalize on it and learning how to sort of play the game of what I would call pseudo interoperability, right? They're sort of stating that they're going to be interoperable, but they're struggling and wrestling with the fact of how do they become economically successful? while they're truly interoperable. And probably a good company to point at as the evolution of it happened is Google and how they managed to stay across multiple platforms, multiple users, felt open most of the time while ultimately it's really not, but driving you into their worlds and managing those gardens, right? So I think that's an interesting kind of area to maybe let, let, me, let me interrupt if I might. Our friend Scott Stein from CNET has joined us a few minutes ago. Welcome, Scott. We're talking about the big stories of 2021, and we all just sort of fell into the metaverse and started devouring uh, this idea. Uh, I wonder if you wanted to jump in and add your thoughts. Yeah, so, um, sorry I'm late, but the um, listening to that topic, yeah, it's true. I think the, in the past year, which has been, been a kind of weird one for me when I look back, I think like the metaverse conversation to me does seem like uh, the, the two things that hit me are, are, are some sort of interoperability, which is kind of like driving the conversation and the idea of uh, coming to where people already are. And I think that the, you know, it's, it's like a lot of off headset conversation, which like, you know, Meta even talked about that and John Comer talked about that, uh, Carmack, sorry. Um, and, and I think like that mass group, how, uh, you know, as you were just discussing about like, what do people decide are the platforms they use to go virtual? This sort of is out of the control of the companies to some degree. And I think now as you, you took a larger scale of this, like the internet um, at large, I think it gets, uh, you know, it, which path does it take? And I think everyone's kind of wrestling with this. And I think it's not the question of our, like, like we were just discussing so well, we've been doing this virtual idea before the internet conceptually, mm -hmm. especially through the internet. Now, it's why are we doing it? And I think a lot of necessities are driving it. Sometimes people are trying to make necessities out of it. So to me, it's like the 3D spaces, um, trying, to trying to have some sort of telepresence, trying to do more and seeing if all the pieces come across. Because like that, that does concern me right now. We saw that with the app stores. And you know, are people going to build verticals or are they going to open it up? And that's like an age old, kind of a debate with content um, that we see everywhere. Um, let's let's move on to the other big topic that we stipulated at the top of the show was gonna be um, the obvious big story of the year was the rise of crypto. We could say in 2021 was the year of crypto, DeFi, whatever uh, we choose to call it, Web 3.0, which is semantically and academically wrong, although probably too late to change. Um, and, and I could explain that, but I won't go down 
the rabbit hole of academic thought that led to the uh, conversation of the fourth transformation being completely subsumed by the crypto guys who insist on calling this phase of the development of the internet web 3.0. Um, you know, I thought and I teach that, um, you know, the mobile web is web 3.0. And Web 4.0, which is this metaverse of the successor internet, as Zuckerberg calls it, has not fully formed yet. Yet the crypto guys have barged in and said, this is Web 3.0. So, okay, I don't, you know, whatever. It's Web 3.0. But what, what does this mean? I think that, you know, we have 20% of people in America who are invested in crypto and DeFi and um, the rapid, rapid rise of um, uh Play to, play to pay or whatever we call it, pay to play. Play to earn. <laughs> play to earn. Yeah. Um, which is, I mean, you know, a whole new idea, Dean. Uh, I'd love to get your perspective on that, right? The first time I heard of it was when I heard of Axie Infinity, which was what, like four months ago? Yeah. Yeah, Axie Infinity is sort of like the big breakaway hit in uh, the, the intersection of, of games and NFTs. And, uh, you know, I think they, they had, you know, maybe players in the thousands at the beginning of the year. And uh, now they have uh, th their last number they had um, in the summer uh, was 2 million people coming back every day. And um, that change uh, happened uh, because, uh, you know, NFTs took off um, with things like NBA Top Shot, which were, you know, sort of little video moments that you could, you could buy as digital collectibles. The NFT, Key part, non-fungible tokens is uh, a way to uh, authenticate, you know, the uniqueness of digital items using the blockchain. And so um, uh, this uh, this combination of, of NFTs and, and other things uh, took off, whether it was art or uh, uh, even music albums, uh, and it made its way to games. And, and, and that's where what was interesting is that the, that companies in this space were monetizing um, a very small audience, but it was a, a crazy enthusiastic audience. Like uh, I think the um, the base uh, audience for uh, NFT Top Shot, um, you know, which is well above eight hundred million dollars in the in you know in truly astonishing sale. Yeah, sales in the past year, both both initial sales and resales. Um, and that $800 million is on a base of like a million people, right? And so like each, on average, each one of them is spending 800 bucks or so. And, and that's the crazy part. And so because I think these crypto game companies, NFT game companies, they, they became profitable, um, you know, uh, on these very small bases of users. Um, plus, you know, they, they found it uh, very easy to raise money through different means, like, you know, selling, um, selling um, NFT avatars or things like that. Um, and, and so then what they launched was this whole rush of capital into this industry. And so uh, we had some of the NFT game companies raising hundreds of millions of dollars. And the, the interesting example was so rare here, which was a fantasy a uh, soccer uh, game company with one game and 30 people, and they raised $680 million at a $4 billion valuation. And, you know, at, at that size, like, you know, these big companies that sit on the sidelines, they usually say, uh, I'm going to wait for this to shake out, and then I'm going to buy whoever's left. And that's how I'm going to absorb innovation into my company. Um, 
and you know when Sorare at thirty people <laughs> raises this you know this level of value, um, then you know your board of directors is going to say what. You spent four billion dollars buying a thirty-person company. Uh, get out of here! <laughs> you know, uh, so it's it's like you know that strategy is no longer possible. And these small companies, uh, they're becoming bigger companies, and they're they're racing ahead. And um, I think um, you know it feels like a very similar situation to mobile when free-to-play started, and um, a lot of the small mobile game companies took off uh, and they became companies like Supercell and you know Machine Zone, et cetera. And the the big incumbent game companies, um, they they pretty much lost. So I think uh, you know we, we're in a, a similar situation here. And you know if this really, really does take off um, and gets to mass adoption and mass audiences around the world, uh, then these small companies can take the market. Um, what, what you're touching on is the, the unbelievable power of speculation, right? People as humans like to speculate on the upside. And what Dean is talking about, made a number of examples on, is the unbelievable power of the speculative market. It's why crypto is doing what it's doing. It's why you know gameplay uh, as an earning mechanism is doing what it's doing. It's why these valuations look kind of out of sight. But you know, a quarter of a generation ago, we saw that with Instagram and the purchase of you know Instagram from Facebook with 11 employees. Uh, we saw that with YouTube a generation before that, right? Uh, with a 1.6 billion dollar um, purchase price that people thought was insane, and now kind of proven not so insane, right? Uh, so we're in, are we you know kind of in the next phase of that right now? The next level of speculation, which again just leads us right back to the metaverse as things get more and more complex. And speculation allows for more and more layers and people to figure these things out. When you talk about, you know, things like Top Shot and Axie Infinity, the speculation runs rampant, not because people are so excited. There's a core player group excited to enjoy the play, but the bulk of the people are in the game to see if they can take that game to the next level and then sell it off. It's a bit like multi-level marketing. At some yeah. Yeah. I'm actually pretty concerned uh, about the way that a lot just i get i get pitches constantly you know through my email people cover us cover us we're doing this we're doing that and so much of it is like the first line is you know we're promising that if people come and buy or invest in whatever is in our game and buy some parcel or some nft or some something you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna earn out later you're gonna make money it's i think there's a fundamental difference uh in a network or an offering where the value is in what you do there versus just promising people come to us because you're going to make money. So to, to Ted's point about speculation, I think there are a lot of these things that are getting really hot really fast because people are dumping money in hoping that their money is going to turn into more money. Uh, the counter to that is like what was Dean, Dean was talking about earlier with Fortnite. No one is playing Fortnite because they think they're going to make a bunch of money from Fortnite. And yet we're talking hundreds of millions of users in that game, not because Epic promised them you come play here and you'll make money with us. They're just, it's just a fun thing, right? It's something that offers genuine value that already exists and is not speculative and is attracting users who are extremely dedicated and have paid money into the game, not because they think they're going to earn back, but because they value their time there, they value their existence there and sort of now, you know, their character there enough to dress themselves in digital clothes and buy things that make their experience better. It's not an investment. Right. It's in, they it's, can't be it's, traded. They can't. 
Yeah. They're uh, a commodity. They're something but, you're going to personally use. But just to bring that point full circle, that I think is where you find the ultimate combination of creating genuine digital value. It's when you give people real experiences they care about, they care about being in that game enough to pay hundreds of dollars, potentially thousands for some of these people because they spend so much time there and they value their time there. They put all this money in. If you then turn that switch, after you've delivered this experience that they love, they just love it, they play hundreds of hours, you turn that switch and say, hey, actually, you actually now own and can trade the stuff that you care about. You personally care about it. You might even value it way more than somebody else and say, no, there's no way I'm selling this to you. I This is mine forever. Now you have a combination of a world people want to be in for no reason other than they love being there. And you have essentially given them money or value that they never thought they had. You've instantly created economy in that way. So to Dean's point, you know, uh, and Charlie, I think you mentioned this earlier too, Fortnite or some other one of these companies that has an intrinsic value in what they're offering people could flip a switch and really dis disrupt these other places that are all built on pure speculation where no one would be there if there wasn't the speculation. Now you have all these dedicated users who can sort of, you know, have these own these items for themselves. That is where we might kick off something where uh, I think will be better than the pure you know, literal land, digital land grab type uh, platforms I see popping up where it's like no one is actually valuing the land other than they think it'll make them money later, where people in these games are so dedicated. I have, they love I have to say the themselves. virtual land boom uh, continues to perplex me uh, because you're buying <laughs> nothing but space on a server um, and the promise that the person who owns that server is going to drive a huge audience to the real estate that you bought. And I think given who these people are, some of them are gifted entrepreneurs and crypto billionaires. So I, I get how they think they can do it. Um, but I really am quite skeptical because how are they going to compete ultimately with Fortnite? Yeah, if they build Fortnite, they'd get the people onto the land, right? Right. If, if you, you build that. Fortnite, you could sell land because you're selling an audience of 350 million people. If you buy land, uh, even in the sandbox, which is growing quickly, or, or Somnium space, which certainly uh, with its mana currency is having tremendous success, um, but what they lack is a huge audience. They lack the 350 million people that Epic has. Um, and you were uh, you had something to say about this? I saw. Please chime yeah. in. Thank you. Yeah, I think while we talk about switching the uh, flip for games like Fortnite, I think it's going to be very, very difficult, even though they have the audience. What was interesting about the Ariana Grande uh, concert in Fortnite is that they were trying to attract a new, younger, primary female audience. And while they did have this incredible event with Ariana, who has very dedicated fans, why would someone go and log into Fortnite? It's, it's still an FPS game at heart. It's, right. it's Battle Royale. So a lot of these younger women, they didn't actually release stats mm, on this. Such a good point. Yeah. How yeah. many actually logged in and how many actually yeah, stayed? I mean, half, half the world is female in this industry. We're very good at ignoring that. Um, I, I, will say, I, I will say there was an incredible watershed event in online music, which was the 27 million people, uniques, who attended the Travis Scott concert on Fortnite. Um, and... and uh, 47 total million total views uh, for a $12 million con a 12 minute concert for which uh, Scott was paid in excess of $20 million. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's yeah. what essentially, uh, I think, 
Charlie, there's one, uh, or just, uh, you know, the the problem with the concerts, the way they're set up now is like, they're sort of inheriting this, this you know, sort of limit of the um, online games, which is like, you, you get an instance that has a hundred people in it. And that's all, that's all the people you can interact yeah. with, right? And that, that's the disappointing part right now is that, you know, they had to build so many we can't have, we in can't order have to get to those 27 million people, right? Yeah, yeah, we can't have an infinite virtual world yeah. that encompasses everybody. There are, yeah, there are some companies that are trying to tackle that problem. And like RP1 is one example. And, you know, they, they think with relatively lightweight games, they can get to 100,000 people in, in one server. And and that would be more of a fun experience where like you're going to feel like you're in an actual concert. Also, you them. could find your friends, which you really can't do unless they're in the mm -hmm. exact same instance. And when 27 million people are jumping in mm -hmm. at once, the chances of that happening are... yeah. You know, like but one I, in 270,000. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you I had something think, to say, I saw. Sorry, uh, okay. Let, let me let you finish, please. Oh, well, I was saying that, you know, Anne's notion of like getting new audiences to join uh, is what is interesting to me about like these different kinds of experiments people are doing. Like Axie Infinity was interesting because, you know, it was popular in the Philippines where uh, they had something like 40% unemployment because of the pandemic and people needed jobs. And, uh, you know, they, they say they, they created hundreds of guilds and hundreds of thousands of jobs in the Philippines for people making money playing Axie Infinity and, you know, you know, leveling up their characters and selling them. And that was a very interesting, uh, you know, twist, uh, you know, like 20% of the players were unbanked, right? And uh, then it spread into places like Nigeria and Indonesia. And, you know, that's how they're they're growing their base now. Like the emerging markets of the world is where this game is taking off. And and that's encouraging as far as like, you know, how, how are you gonna get to a metaverse? How are you gonna get everybody in the world to participate in it? And, um, you know, I, I think the, the challenge though, of course, is that notion that it's an economy. And, you know, right right now in, in recent weeks uh, Axie Infinity's uh, you know base token price has been declining and so like the you know amount of money some person makes you know they, they have to invest a lot in order to start playing a game and then they they do this on an expectation they make a certain amount of money but all of a sudden if the price goes down then they make 50 percent less in a month than they thought they were going to make right and that what kind of job is that right I mean, <laughs> it's a little actually like crypto mining right you have to stake you know, you have to, to buy a certain amount of the currency and mm -hmm. and you're depending when you do that, the price of the currency will go up and mm -hmm. and your ability to earn from mining will will uh, increase as well to justify your stake and the amount of power and computing power that you've invested in to create these uh, crypto networks. So, of course, if people lose faith, they use it less, they don't use it to mint NFTs, then there aren't enough transactions to validate for the miners to make money. And they're a very fickle and data-driven bunch. And a lot of miners switch back and forth between different currencies, depending on where they think they're going to make the most money. So, you know, that is real economic incentives at work. Um, so I don't think you can just say you have an economy you know, it has to react to events, um, both positive and negative, um, if it's really tied to uh, anything concrete. Uh, anyway, Ben, you had something to add. 
Uh, I think everybody uh, pretty much covered and wrapped up a lot of the a lot of the thinking here. So uh, if you're ready to move on, I'm I'm down. Please, right, Scott, do you have anything to add or move on? No, just that um, you know I think like the way I see it from, from what yeah when I'm being pitched on everything else, it's like and I see companies pivoting. Definitely, you know we've seen we've seen a lot of metaverse XR companies pivoting more to NFTs um, because the interest is there or financially could could drive it. But it does, there's like a chicken and egg thing to me, which is like the permanence of information. Like I'm used to a lot of my stuff, you know, being in different formats, different, you know, not being used in different apps, not being compatible, games that are offline, games that disappear from the app store. Like, you know, the idea of a cartridge that stays locked in time is like a Game Boy idea, you know. And, you know, we're trying to get to this type of like object of permanence. And, it's really hard in this era. Like that's not something that does, that feels, I would just prefer to focus on kind of like common, you know, file formats and, and, and ways that we're going to build things in, in 3D. I feel like there you create the asset that has value. Now we're like, it's starting, it's like, how do you know a website is going to be interesting? It's like attention in a lot of ways. Sometimes a domain name sells, but it's like, it feels reversed. And so I don't know, I just, and this is for me, you know, look, I'm sure a lot of people will disagree with me on that, but I think, that's kind of how I look at it right now. It does feel premature if necessary. And I, I'd rather see how things work because I'm really concerned. You have this NFT house. Do you know it's going to work everywhere? There are a lot of promises that it will. History says that it, it may not. That's that's true. Yeah, just to sort of, I think, echo Scott, maybe a bit about what you're saying here is like, you might you might invest some serious money in some of these things, but in the same way that, a, you know, the video game you love that you bought and the servers can go offline, you can never play it again. Some of these places, not all of these places are going to exist. Not all of them are going to want to be interoperable. Something that you invest a lot in today, we're talking, you know, real money on speculation. I mean, it could go up in flames and that's why it's speculation. That that company could shut down, shut the servers down. And maybe you have the proof that you uh, own the thing, but if the asset actually doesn't exist online anymore and you don't have it locally backed up, then it's it's poof. So, so we're almost out of time. We did, as Ben pointed out, beat the metaverse horse. Uh, let me just say on behalf of the writers here, uh, if there are any PR and marketing people uh, uh, listening to this, for God's sake, stop using metaverse in your press release. It ruins your credibility. It often causes me just to discard your email. So please, the overview, overuse and misunderstanding of this word in releases is infuriates me. Uh, because it shows me immediately that you don't know anything about what you're talking about. So uh, why should I read your release? Uh, just saying. Uh, okay, so we've, we've got just a little while left. So Anne, top stories of 2021 we didn't cover and or your predictions for 22. Yeah, I think predictions for 2022. I think that the big companies in play like uh, Epic Games and NVIDIA and Meta I don't think they'll be the future of the social metaverse, whatever that may be. But I do think they will lead the way in enterprise because of the technology and innovation they're pushing there. But I think because Web 3.0 uh, or metaverse is so community driven and people will be different, play different roles at different times in their lives for different reasons, whether that be social or for commercial. So there's so much room for opportunity for startups, but also for people to create and to participate in different parts of this ecosystem. But I think we're gonna see a lot of growth in the social space while the bigger companies will push on the enterprise. Dean? 
I, one thing going back a little bit was that I, I don't have as much patience for people who say the metaverse is already here because I think we're really talking about something more imaginative than what's already here. <laughs> and and so like, you know, Shras Zelnick from Take-Two Interactive said this year that, uh, you know, well, you know, Grand Theft Auto Online is the metaverse. Uh, if you if you think that there's going to be a metaverse, then we've, we've got everything you're talking about there. Uh, but, um, you know, it, it, you know, one, it, I think it has to be real time, like the real time internet, um, you know, instant interaction, instant, um, you know, moving between worlds, that, that type of thing, I think is, is what's not here yet. And that, you know, um, people think it's real time because, you know, there are games and things like that, but, uh, but, you know, what we really have in mind is something a lot more imaginative and, and that feels, you know, like science fiction has pointed the way uh, for us uh, for a long time there, like the matrix and all that, and all that feels like, you know, 10 years away. I do feel like, you know, one easy prediction is that, you know, Epic Games showed off the Unreal Engine 5 with amazing. the Matrix uh, demo, and that was pretty amazing. They're going to give away a city with it, and um, that, you know, that's debuting in 2022, and that yeah. becomes... By the way, for those of us who right. are doing virtual yeah. production, mm -hmm. a, a city-scale map is pretty unbelievable, and it's going to enable a burst of creativity uh, mm -hmm. on that platform that we have not yet seen. So I yeah. personally and, can't yeah, wait. I, think I can see it's... a thousand applications of it. Uh, mm -hmm. And and I think one of the big stories this year that I was going to mention, Dean, was the not rise of Epic Games, but Epic really coming out publicly and trying to define itself versus the biggest companies in the business, uh, mm -hmm. including, in, you know, including Meta and including yeah. Um, you know, they are obviously headed for a blockbuster IPO. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that what their argument is, too, is that games lead the way, right? They're, they're going to launch Unreal Engine 5 next year and enable a lot of other game companies to sort of follow suit. And uh, I, I think that they have a credible argument that, you know, they can take some of this back yeah. from the big tech companies, right? And uh, that's what they're trying to do. And uh, they're not necessarily trying to become the platform themselves, but, uh, but to enable the game companies to actually um, take the bulk of the market here, as opposed to, you know, having to always pay rent on the land <laughs> right. of the big tech companies, yeah, right? That's a good way of putting it. Scott? I think we've seen, like, to me, the past two years is like the, the our, everyone's virtual living meets, like, uh, the XR space, you know, and like, as that has flown in and rewritten some of it and reemphasized, that to me feels like what happened by the end of 2021. But what's interesting to me is, is you're mentioning like the metaverse as we imagine it not being fully here. I still think the hardware is a huge part of what needs to happen and software intercompatibility. Like Quest 2 is not enough. And, and it's, they're really, it's, it's kind of boiled down to one voice in some ways in the space as others have moved more towards business. And um, I think it's gonna be, by the time the chips fall, I think between Meta's next headset, PlayStation VR 2, and if Apple is releasing its headset, those are three really big steps yeah. in I, introducing I all sorts of ideas. Yeah, it's clear that, that, that many players have not yet been heard from who are gonna have something to say about this. Uh, you know, clearly Apple, uh, you know, as the sort of Damocles, if you will, hanging over the industry. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, they've got so many prototypes and so many different approaches hanging around. 
uh, I listened to Kara, uh, sorry, I listened to Jason McDowell's um, uh, interview with uh, Bob Scoble uh, on my walk yesterday. And of course it was an orgy of Apple rumors. Um, you know, Bob has been predicting the arrival of Apple XR since 2016. Uh, and, uh, and he may be right in 2022. I'm a little skeptical because I think you have to introduce these things to the world of developers first. Uh, and, and I don't see Apple doing that uh, unless it's a, just a media player. Um, I did hear uh, one thing Scoble said that I thought was interesting was that they were moving toward uh, audio smart glasses and they were going to launch without a screen, uh, you know, their first version. So that's a different version of the $3,000 headset rumor. So, you know, take, take your pick of Apple rumors, but uh, the mere existence of their research and, and their pending release, whether it's 22, 23, or, or 24, which would be a time frame that I would be more, uh, I think is more realistic because again, you got to have a year of developers figuring out what, what this is. Um, so, uh, but I do think that the Apple story has yet to be told and I think it's going to have a big impact on everything uh, that we've just been discussing because, you know, they own, you know, it's funny, Microsoft came out <laughs> after uh, Facebook somewhat comically in a way introduced workrooms, which really deserves more credit than it's gotten. And they said, just to remind you, we have 250 million users <laughs> uh, of uh, Microsoft Office uh, and, and particularly their, uh, you know, their uh, conferencing platform. So it's sort of a way of putting Facebook uh, in perspective. And certainly Microsoft is the other player that needs to be heard from more decisively in, in, in this growing development of, of uh, the internet. Well, I'd say what, the other thing I meant to say is just that I feel like for software integration compatibility, um, we're well overdue in seeing hook-ins to advance the conversation. You know, I'm waiting for Google to reemerge in the XR space and announce even just how things connect with it better. Um, iOS, certainly. Microsoft is, but it still feels like a side path, you know, it feels like, you know, I think for all of these, I think about wearable tech, you know, the way watches took off um, and became much more standardized and Bluetooth is a standard. You're like, I just feel like you need things that can connect to your devices in a more advanced way. Mm -hmm. And whether it's um, more advanced audio or other, other wearables things, it, it feels very primitive for the type of stuff that we need. Um, ben, parting thoughts? Yeah, um, uh, quickly, just looking back on 2021, I think, uh, you know, a lot has happened, but one of the moments that I sort of personally remember uh, as being important uh, milestone is uh, a handful of new friends this year without any prompting from me, people who are not in the VR industry who are not necessarily heavy tech people uh, just decided uh, this quest thing seems really interesting and went and on their own, you know, decision, bought one. Uh, hit me up, and at some point, uh, five of us were playing mini golf in VR from across the country together, um, and that's a really magical experience. You know, we think we talked a lot about some really high-level stuff, metaverse, very theoretical. Um, this is that moment for me is very interesting in that a lot of maybe a podcast we would have had in 2016 or 2017 talking about oh maybe one day all this all that it'll be sort of mainstream it'll be happening that is now like here right uh not for everybody uh not for every use case but for some of these small moments um just the ability to feel like you're just playing mini golf and hanging out with friends uh who are in completely different parts of the world really really kind of magical and i think uh is 
the very personal and more, I think, meaningful uh, way that this industry and the value bubbles up more so than, you know, hey, come invest and speculate in these big platforms. I, I think the the way that it's all going to happen is is where these moments of person to person connection, interaction and value uh, happen and where they can draw people back for more of that. Ted, how about you? You've been relatively quiet for you, but on the other hand, it's usually just the two of us. Yeah, well, we've got a lot of very smart <laughs> people. Are less, people are much smarter than us. <laughs> delivering, and, and I, I kind of, that was sort of my reflection too, is this week we have clearly people that are smarter than us that do this all the time, that speculate, think about, write about uh, our industry at large, right? Um, and I think, you know, maybe all I would say is, I, I, I was thinking as everybody was talking about, do I, do I get to be the one that puts the odd parental voice uh, onto this that says, kids, remember to go outside and play sometimes because, you know, uh, don't get caught completely in this virtual thing uh, because you're going to, you know, lose the balance of what life is, right? So use what all these folks are telling us, what Charlie, you and I have learned over the past couple of years of doing this podcast every week, uh, that life is about balance and enjoyment and family and fun and uh, enjoy the tools you have, live in VR as much as you want, but get outside and play too. Um, that, that is a lovely thought and a great way to end this podcast. Thank you guys for joining us this morning. Um, I, let me just say from the bottom of my heart, I deeply appreciate your work. Uh, I've learned so much from it. I could not do my job without it. So please keep it coming. Your insights are so important to me personally and professionally. So uh, thank you all. Uh, Anne, lovely to see you live from Paris. Uh, everybody else have a great holiday season and uh, hopefully I will see you at CES. Uh, who's going to CES? At this point, it's a yes. So we'll see how it uh, holds up. God is, Scott's hand is not up. <laughs> I have made the decision to be virtual for a while. So I'm going to put it to the test. All right. Sounds great. Happy holidays, everybody. Holidays, Thanks everybody. for, Thanks for Bye. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye, everyone. Thank you.